Father, we bow before your sovereignty this morning as Lord of the universe, as King of creation, as Savior of our lives. We give you praise for the life that you give to us each and every day, for the strength to live for you. I thank you, Lord, that we have these moments that we can gather together in fellowship as fellow believers. And I ask that as we focus our thoughts now on your word, that your spirit will give us understanding and help us in applying the truths to our daily walk. Our desire is that we might be used of you to minister to those around us. And so, Father, I pray that our focus will be sharp, that we'll be attentive to what your voice is saying to us through your word today. Lord, touch each life, grant strength. In Christ's name, amen. I'd like to read this morning from the 49th chapter of Genesis, verses 8 through 12. Genesis 49, 8 through 12. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, as a lion who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull, or literally dark, from wine, and his teeth white from milk. Jacob is giving his last will and testament, if you will, to his 12 sons. As we have read already, the prophecy that God has obviously inspired, that he has spoken concerning, concerning Reuben and Simeon and Levi, these have not been particularly favorable prophecies. But now as we turn to the prophecy concerning Judah, not only is it longer in, in terms of the actual number of words used than that to either Reuben, Simeon, or Levi, but as you probably noticed, and as I mentioned at the end of class last time, there is no unfavorable aspect to this prophecy. Whereas in the case of Reuben and Simeon and Levi, there was much unfavorable spoken in the prophecy, but not so in that of Judah. And in many ways, this is the central prophecy of all the prophecies concerning the 12 sons. This is where, this is the high point. This seems to be the most clear reference to Messiah. Judah, Yehuda, in brief means praised. In verse 8 of this passage, uh, Jacob emphasizes the significance of the name. He says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. And, and that's a takeoff on his name. But of course, the original meaning of the name was not that he, Judah, should be praised, but that God should be praised. If we look back at the um, 29th chapter of Genesis, where we have the account of the birth of Judah, it, the account is only a few words, in verse 35, she conceived again, this is Leah, and bore a son and said, 
This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Judah. I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Judah. I think it's very, very interesting. And in, in some ways, of course, from the human perspective, it might be seen as strange that the man whose name literally meant the one for whom praise is given to God. Isn't that a, a neat name if you think about it for a minute? The one for whom praise is given to God. I think all of us would like to have a name like that. And, and in, in a sense, we do, in that we are the children of God, joint heirs with Christ. But that that person should be the namesake for a people who have not been praised for the past 2,000 years. In fact, who have been jeered, who have been looked down upon, who have been the subject of pogroms for hundreds of years, the Jewish people. But as we look at the book of Genesis, as we have, we note that Judah proved himself to be more noble spiritually than all of his brothers, with the exception, of course, of Joseph. Joseph was the most obvious. The scripture goes into great de detail as to what God did through Joseph. But it seems to be almost, in most cases, almost just a passing reference to Judah. And yet that mounts up as we see in this um, particular prophecy. Jacob's opening statement in verse 8 seems to indicate the position of honor that Judah, maybe not himself so much, but literally the tribe of Judah would one day have. Your brothers shall praise you. Now Judah did prove himself to be more noble and more spiritually astute than his other brothers, except of course Joseph. But I think the reference here is not specifically to him, but to the tribe which would descend from him. And I think in the second part of the verse where it says, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, refers to the strength and the power that would concentrate in the tribe of Judah as it would develop over the 400 years that they live in Egypt and then begin the exodus out of Egypt to go into the promised land. The strength and power was at least in part the result of the numerical strength of the tribe of Judah tribe of Judah, would be the largest of all the tribes, particularly after Joseph was divided into the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, which of course then meant the tribe of Joseph was two tribes. Uh, Judah would be larger than any of the other single tribes almost throughout all of history from probably sometime during the slavery period in, in Egypt. So when it says to put his hand upon the neck of the enemy, this, of course, is a statement which implies victory. Victory over the enemy. The enemy is subdued because your hand is upon the neck. Often we see the picture of someone standing with his foot on the neck of a defeated foe. And, and all of this has to do with the idea of subjugation. Judah would become the dominant tribe. Uh, as the United Monarchy was formed, Judah would become the dominant tribe. And then after the monarchy was divided with the Jeroboam-Rehoboam uh, division, Judah, of course, would be the dominant tribe in the southern kingdom throughout the history of that particular kingdom. And, and during that period, through the period of David and Solomon, and then 
at least part of the time during the period of the southern kingdom, uh, many of the surrounding peoples would be conquered and ruled by Judah. There would be a time when Edom would be ruled and Moab would be ru ruled and Ammon would be, ru uh, would be ruled and uh, uh, parts of the Syrian area would be ruled and, and the Phoenicians would be in a kind of a relationship of hegemony, uh, under hegemony, and uh, so would be uh, the Philistines. And that wouldn't be throughout all the period, but of course during parts of the period. During David's time, of course, he conquered that whole territory and built the great Davidic Empire, which extended clear to the Euphrates River. It's kind of interesting that with the Lord's help, Judah would even stand in the face of the ferocious nation of Assyria, which established a great empire all the way through the Middle East uh, back in the 8th century, and yet... Uh, Judah would stand as an island independent for at least part of the time. Scripture goes on to say, your father's sons shall bow down to you. This does not just refer to Leah's sons, that is his full-blooded brothers, but it also refers to Rachel's sons, and it refers to the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. All of these would one day bow down to Judah, now, Judah would not experience this during his lifetime, but in the, in the sense that he went on in his sons and his daughters down through time, the tribe of Judah would experience this. Now, we've already talked about the fact that Joseph, of course, had his dream, and in his dream, two dreams, actually, it, it showed, God showed to him that his brothers would bow down and do homage to him, and we know that that happened. When they came down to Egypt, we saw that dramatic story of the brothers bowing down to Joseph. Of course, they didn't know he was Joseph, but even later they did homage to him because he was the prime minister of the land. He had the power. Now, in the case of uh, Judah, the homage would not come during Judah's lifetime, but would come later. And, but when it came, it would be much more enduring. The homage done to Joseph was only done during Joseph's lifetime. But the homage done to Judah would go on for hundreds of years. Now, the Israelites would remain in Egypt for something over 400 years. These years just kind of, it's easy for us to say the number 400. But, you know, if we try to think about that, I mean, that would be a longer period of time than it's been since Jamestown was founded or Plymouth Rock was first stepped upon, you know. Uh, from the very birth of our nation, it's longer period of time than that. Think, oh, well, 400 years in Egypt, no big deal. You know, it's just ch -ch -ch, go through it in a chapter or even it's kind, of, it's kind of like in between Genesis and Exodus, there's 400 years and there's, you know, just zip. But of course, it wasn't zip for the people who lived through it. It's a long, hard time. And of course, it was a transition period. The scripture doesn't give us detail of how it was that the Israelites went from, from being a, a, an accepted people who were living independently within the land until they became a slave people. All we're told is that there arose a pharaoh in Egypt who knew not Joseph, that is, remembered not the legacy of Joseph, and therefore began to suppress or to oppress the Israelites. And so it probably it came slowly on them and, and was not full-blown until they'd been there for a couple of hundred years. And then, of course, it got 
the very worst at the end when they were getting ready to leave and Moses was talking to Pharaoh and he says, well, if these people got so much time on their hands that they can go out in the desert to praise God, then they need to work harder. And uh, so the oppression got worse right at the end. 400 years of time. And then would come the Exodus. And in the Exodus, the first great leaders of Israel were Moses and Aaron of the tribe of Levi, not of Judah, of the tribe of Levi. And then in the following centuries, power would gravitate in, first into the hand of Joshua, and Joshua was not of the tribe of Judah either. He was the tribe of Ephraim. And then you had judges like Gideon, who was from Manasseh. You have Samson, who was from Dan. Uh, you have Samuel, the great prophet leader, who was also from Ephraim. And then you have Saul, who was from little bitty Benjamin. Benjamin was a small tribe. So where is the leadership of Judah here, you might say, as, as, you, as you read through this. But I think what we need to note is that during the period of the conquest and of the judges, what you have are transitory leaders. What you have are charismatic individuals who are raised up by God to give leadership during this moment of crisis, this hour of need, and then when the crisis is over and the land is firmly settled and the people are prepared to, to live as an established nation, then God would raise up the leadership of Judah. So when the leadership of Judah did finally come, it would be long-lasting. And Judah would forever then be the ruling tribe as far as Israel was concerned. The actual exaltation begins with David because Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. And when Saul was set aside by God, God chose David. And God didn't just choose David in some kind of a supernatural roulette wheel method. God knew what he was doing and he chose David as the man who would lead his people. And then there would be Solomon and then there would be the Davidic line, which would last for approximately 500 years in terms of rulership over the land. I'd like to look at a couple of passages in the historical books. If we could turn to 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, I'm sorry, chapter 5. This kind of sums up the coming of David to the role of leadership. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Notice it says, all of the tribes. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be rule, ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. And if you turn a little bit further on into uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 5, we read this passage before when we were talking about Reuben. 1 Chronicles 5, 1 and 2. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, and then we have a parenthetical statement, 
for he was the firstborn. But because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright, though Judah prevailed over his brothers. And from him came the leader. Yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. Judah would be the tribe that would prevail. And David, of course, would be the man who would bring that prevalence into reality. And as you and I well know, the term David keeps being used over and over again in Scripture, referring to the kingship, the, the, the authority, the leadership, and then, of course, also to the line that would lead to Messiah. I, I don't know if there's any significance to it at all, but there is no other person mentioned in Scripture with the name of David. A lot of other names are repeated, but David's name is, uh, is not. The ultimate meaning of verse 8, of course, would be fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah. And I think we're all familiar with that passage in Philippians, but I, I just wanted to read it again this morning because it's such a glorious passage. It gives us such hope, I think, because we live in the world where they jeer at the Christ whom we serve, they think that Jesus is nothing more than one teacher amongst many or subs someone who was just predecessor to the prophet Muhammad or whatever, you know. Uh, just another manifestation of, the, uh, of Krishna or something, you know, in many people's opinions. But in Philippians 2.9, Therefore God, also God, highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Not will it be only the brothers of Judah who will bow to this king, but every knee shall bow in heaven and in earth and under the earth. And of course, that is referent to the fact that it doesn't matter whether you're talking about Adam and Eve or the very last person who lived, lives on this planet. Every knee shall bow, either willingly, as I trust we have all chosen to do now, or by force for those who have rejected him and have perished in their sin they will also bow the knee. I don't know if you have as I, but I've talked to individuals who have basically said, well, if that's the kind of God you believe in, then when I see him one day, I'm going to tell him so. You're not going to tell him anything. <laughs> you're going to stand there absolutely, you're going to kneel there absolutely awestruck. People have no conception of the glory and the majesty and power of God. And the thought that we, as puny little human beings, could stand there and tell God a thing or two. We try it every once in a while, don't we? In our flesh, I think. But to, to stand before him in all of his majesty and glory. <laughs> it's kind of sad as well as humorous at the same time. You know, the scripture tells us that our God is a consuming fire. And for a sinful man to, to chastise God is, is absolutely ridiculous. But for those who don't understand God as to whom he is, why, of course, 
it's easy for them to think that way. In the ninth verse, back in Genesis 49, we read that Judah is a lion's whelp, a lion's cub, a young growing lion. He displays a little bit of a lion potential when he finally did at Dothan uh, face up to his brothers and say, we, we should not kill our brother Joseph because he, after all, is our blood. Therefore, let's sell him to the Amalekites. You know, I mean, that was a step in the right direction, and it took a little bit of guts for Judah to stand there in front of his brothers, especially Simeon and Levi, who were his older brothers and were probably the, the, uh, the prime motivators behind the desire to destroy Joseph. And then in Egypt... He really did assume the leadership of the brothers and displayed a little glimmer there too of this lion's whelp. The prophecy, of course, though, goes beyond Judah personally and it refers to the tribe of Judah also, the development of the tribe. I think as you look at the um, second line in verse 9, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. We see a little bit of the explanation of what it means to be a lion here. I think that there are at least a couple ways we can understand that second line. A portrait of a regal lion who has slain his prey and now is taking his prey up into his lair. One day Judah would have the hill country, which is called today the hill country of Judea. One day that would be the possession of the tribe of Judah. They would be ensconced in the mountains from Jerusalem to Hebron and from the Dead Sea over to the Shephelah, the, hill country, uh, the, uh, the uh, foothills uh, next to the plain of Philistia. This would be the headquarters, the home of Judah. And from that mountain they would, they would move out against their, against their enemies. And then a second possible understanding of this particular passage is that as a lion captures its prey and devours its prey, through that it grows and becomes a strong, mature lion. And thus through the victories that Judah would win, the tribe of Judah would grow in strength and dominion. I think these are possible explanations uh, for the, that second phrase. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. And then it goes on in that same ninth verse to portray what we might think of. We've all seen the, what National Geographic or Discovery or something, and they show the lions on the hunt. And you follow the lioness as she just, she gets as low as she can to the ground and creeps along, and then she coils up like a spring and gets ready to, 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 to pounce. And that seems to be the, the portrait here. He couches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? I don't think that means to go over and poke a sleeping lion so much as it means to become the object of attention of a lioness who's coiled and ready to spring. It can be a very dangerous thing. Unless, of course, you're some great big powerful beast. But uh, the lion is considered to be the king of the beasts. In some ways, I think it could be thought that this ninth verse is a picture of the Messiah, of Christ. Christ came as a lion's cub, came as a baby in the manger. And although we've all seen pictures of lion's, lion's cubs, and uh, they look like just big, playful kittens. 
He looks so cuddly, you want to pet him and play with him. But they grow up to be full-grown lions. And, and traditionally, the lion has been called the king of the beasts. Not something you probably walk up and stroke and say nice kitty to, you know, this, this great beast. If, if we, we think about this for a minute, Jesus, as he was there in the manger, was a helpless baby. And sometimes we sing songs about little baby Jesus, and, and, and that's fine. But Jesus, as he was there in the manger, was God. In all that God is, he was God. And so in some ways, it's like the little lion cub. It's just a cuddly little furry ball, cute little thing. But inside that little furry ball is the latent possibility of becoming this great full-grown lion. That's maybe a poor comparison, but we get some kind of an idea of how Jesus, as the little infant there, would one day grow up to be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. <coughs> the lion springs without warning. The lioness creeps up as close as she can get under cover before she springs on her prey. The coming of Jesus Christ is in many ways very similar. The second coming. Because the scripture says, in, a in the hour when you think not, the Son of Man will come. And so his return will be sudden, like the springing of a lion, the, the breaking forth of a lion out of the bushes. So Christ's come, coming will be sudden. The scripture says, in a twinkling of an eye. There's a verse that kind of ties this together, I think, in Revelation chapter 5, where John has been shown the vision of the one sitting on the throne who has the book in his hands, the scroll, and no one's able to break the seals of the scroll so that it can be read, and, and John becomes very upset about this, and he, Scripture says he began to weep greatly, but then in verse 5, one of the elders said to me, stop weeping, behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. There's no doubt about the fact that Jesus Christ as Messiah is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And I think that that is resident in this prophecy here, that ultimately the references are to the lion of the tribe of Judah. In the 10th verse of this passage in Genesis, we see that the Judah was to be the ruling tribe, and this is emphasized by the fact that it says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter is a very ancient symbol. It goes way, way back in time. Some of the earliest carvings show rulers sitting there with a scepter of some sort in their hands. A scepter was often a rod, and sometimes it had a kind of a globe on the top or some kind of a swelling in the upper part of it, and, and often it was made out of gold, encrusted with jewels. It was a symbol of royal authority, the scepter. And, and embodied in that was the power of the kingdom represented by that ruler. And so the to wield the scepter is to wield political authority. 
And generally, you see the portrait of the sitting king, and he holds his scepter, and the base of that scepter <coughs> rests on, uh, and on the front of the, th uh, the throne between his feet, and that is the reference here in Genesis. Some of you have seen the portrait that uh, Napoleon had painted for himself when he returned uh, after his little uh, exile on the island of Elba, and he came in what's called the Hundred Days, and he came back and he was going to try to start the problem all over again. Of course, he wasn't considering a problem, but he wanted to rule. And, and he had himself painted as Caesar with a scepter in his hand. So from ancient times to modern times, the scepter has been the symbol of royal power, of political power. And, and we see this portrayed for us clearly in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Esther. In the fifth chapter of the book of Esther, we, we, I trust we all know the story of Esther, and she's been married to the king and uh, probably Xerxes. And then in the fifth chapter it says, Now it came about on the third day that Esther put, her, put on her royal robes and stood in the inner chamber of the king's palace, in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And it happened when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. He offered it to her, which was a symbol that you may come into my presence. As you know from earlier passages, the previous chapter here in the book of Esther, to come unbidden into the presence of the Persian king was to invite death. The Persian kings lived in kind of an oriental aura, and uh, you kind of groveled before them. And uh, that was part of the way they liked to rule. And so for Esther, even though she was his queen, she could have been killed for having you know, assumed that she could walk into his presence or be in the outer court there where he could see her. But he extends the scepter, his, his symbol of power, and invites her to come into his presence. Now the scepter would not literally belong to Judah for many, many years. Judah would not possess the scepter, of course, in Egypt. Uh, Judah would not possess the scepter during the period of the judges. Judah would not possess the scepter until the death of Saul, the first of the Israelite kings. And then when David is crowned, in the passage we read in 2 Samuel, in effect the scepter was passed to David. And the scepter finally came into the hands of Judah. But... The primacy of the tribe is illustrated by many other events that we're going to look at here just briefly for a moment that indicate that in God's eyes, Judah had already been elevated to primacy. For example, if you turn to the book of Numbers, the second chapter, Numbers 2.1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, The sons of Israel shall camp, each by his own standard, with the banners of their father's households. They shall camp around the tent of meeting at a distance. Now those who camp on the east side toward the sunrise shall be of the standard of Judah by their armies. And the leader of the sons of Judah, Nashon, the son of Amenadab. 
and his army, even their numbered men of nearly 75,000. Now, which way did the opening of the tabernacle face? East. East towards the rising sun. And so Judah encamped immediately opposite the opening of the tabernacle in the prime position. Turn over to the 10th chapter of Numbers. By God's declaration, verse 11, Numbers 10, 11. Now it came about in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day, that the cloud was lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the sons of Israel set out on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai. Then, they, then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. So they moved out for the first time, according to the commandment of the Lord through Moses. And the standard of the camp of the sons of Judah, according to their armies, set out first. So Judah led the way. Judah followed the cloud. Judah was in the, at the point of the, of the spear, if you will as Israel moved out across the landscape. They camped in the prime position. They led in the march of Israel. And then Judges, chapter 1. First chapter of Judges, first two verses. Now it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Judah shall lead the assault on the land. Now, of course, Judah was the largest tribe, had the greatest manpower. But nevertheless, it was God's sovereign choice that Judah shall lead. And then finally, in the third chapter of Judges, verse 8, Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. And when the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's brother. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. And he went out to war. He went out to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim into the king of Mesopotamia into his hand, so that he prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. The land had rest for forty years, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. That's the first of the judges. The first of these charismatic leaders that God would raise up to serve as the administrator momentarily of the theocracy that God had proclaimed for Israel. Israel was to be a theocracy, that is, a kingdom that God ruled. And when there was a need, he would raise up a leader to lead them in battle. And, and this very first one was Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's brother. And Caleb was of the tribe of Judah. Kenaz was of the tribe of Judah. Othniel was of the tribe of Judah. So the first of the judges was also from the tribe of Judah. Interestingly, though, for the next two centuries, the tribe of Judah would be eclipsed. And as you go through the various judges, one after the other, you find that they do not come from the tribe of Judah. They come from various tribes, as we've noted a few already. One of the, of course, I guess what you would call most notorious was, was Samson. 
of the tribe of Dan. And, and the tribe of Dan will have a very, very strange history because the tribe of Dan settles it first, according to the land they were given, uh, over against the coast. And, and they were sort of the front line to the Philistines. And that's one of the reasons why Samson was over there slaying Philistines all the time. But later on, uh, a portion of the tribe, after the tribe was nearly annihilated, would move way to the north, up north of the Sea of Galilee. And they would kind of be a divided tribe, only tribe to be that seriously divided. Manasseh, when they settled in the land, one half would settle on the east side of the Jordan, the other half would settle on the west side, but at least on the two sides of the Jordan they had a common border. But Dan would be <laughs> divided by 80 miles or so between the two pieces of the, uh, of the tribe, and it would almost be obliterated uh, as a tribe for the sin that was allowed into that tribe. The greater fulfillment, though, of the prophecy, or a greater fulfillment of the prophecy, will come in the 11th century, in the days of David. First Chronicles 28. First Chronicles 28.4. Yet the Lord, the God of Israel, chose me from all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever. For he has chosen Judah to be a leader, and in the house of Judah, my father's house, and among the sons of my father, he took pleasure in me to make me king over Israel. These are the words of David. Therefore, in David personally, and in the concept, if you will, of the throne of David, this prophecy had its greatest earthly fulfillment. All of Israel was subject to David. And he created an empire, as I mentioned to you before. That empire stretched all the way from a border down with Egypt, not in Egypt, but in the Sinai, and then all the way up to the Euphrates River. But, but David only ruled 40 years, and David died, and, and thus he passed from the scene. And, and this promise or this, this prophecy in, in Genesis has, has an enduring aspect to it. And, of course, the, the fulfillment then was not just then in the fact that Solomon succeeded his father, and Solomon ruled another 40 years, and then that there was a kingdom called Judah in which members of the, of the family of David succeeded each other through about 20 individuals. That, either individually or collectively, does not fulfill the prophecy given in Genesis. Second... Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity... I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. How can that be? How can it be forever? Because you and I know that for what? 1,800 years or more, 1,900 years, 
There was no sovereign state of Israel or Judah even. You know, after Rome stepped in, and particularly after the Bar Kokhba revolt in the second century, the, the uh, Jews were not even allowed to live in Jerusalem. In fact, the Romans renamed Jerusalem Aelia Capitolina. And on the Temple Mount, they built temples to the Capitoline Triad, to Jupiter and Juno. And the land was called Palestine, which is a derivative of Philistine. So when actually, if you, call the land Philist, if you call the land Palestine, you're calling it the land of the Philistines. And, and so how in the world can this, this throne be forever? Well, the throne can be forever only in the sense that we read in that 10th verse, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Shiloh. The exact meaning of the word Shiloh is not even known. Shiloh refer, is mentioned here for the first time. The word Shiloh shows up several times in the historical books, but never does it refer to what it refers to in this passage. All of the other references refer to a physical town in central Israel. But the town probably didn't even exist when this prophecy was made. And the town would later be destroyed by the Philistines. The only claim to fame of that town was that during the time of Joshua and of the judges, the Ark of the Covenant was set up there at Shiloh. And the people would have to go to Shiloh to worship at the Ark and at the tabernacle that was established on the top of the hill there at Shiloh during the period of the judges. In fact, I'll turn to uh, Judges 21... Verse 19, where it says, And they said, Behold, there is a feast of the Lord from year to year in Shiloh, which is on the north side of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, and on the south side of Labona. Now, maybe that doesn't mean anything to you, but if you, if you think of the, the ridge route that went north, it went from Hebron to Jerusalem, and then north from there up towards Shechem, and, and you go on the east side of that, over a few miles, there are a bunch of barren hills over there. One of them is Bethel, and then is Shiloh, and then the north of that is Labona. And that's what he's, what's being said here in the book of Judges. Today it's a barren tell. It's just the rocky hill looks like a lot of other rocky hills in Israel today. About 20 miles north of Jerusalem. Shiloh never played an important political role in the history of Israel. So this passage in Genesis cannot be referring to the town. The most likely options are, first, that the word, since it seems to be related to the word shalom, 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 there seems to be a close relationship there. It's thought to mean the man of peace until the man of peace comes. And some say, oh, the man of peace, that must be in Solomon. I mean, after all, Solomon was the one who was the man of peace. David couldn't build a tabernacle because he was a bloody man, a warrior. And, and therefore, God had to raise up Solomon, a man of peace, uh, in whose time the temple could be built. And of course, Solomon did rule the largest kingdom in the history of Israel, the Davidic kingdom that he inherited. But Solomon is a very, very pale and flawed representative of the Prince of Peace. 
And I think what we're talking about here is Solomon's reign was important, but it was just a mere shadow, a, a foreshadowing of the great reign of the Prince of Peace. I'd like to turn to Isaiah. The first passage is, well, both passages are, should be well known to most of us. Ninth, passage, ninth chapter particularly, since it is so often read at Christmas time. Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Turn over to chapter 11. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox, and the nursing child will play in the hole of the cobra. The weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Is that just a lot of poetry? That's after Shiloh comes, when Christ returns again. The true kingdom of peace will be established. And this passage and many others seems to portray a time which often is referred to by theologians as the millennium, when Christ will rule and reign on the earth and will truly be the Prince of Peace that all will see. And he will reign on the throne of David, as it were, from the city of Jerusalem. Many people think this is really hilarious. Jerusalem? I mean, you'd think they'd rule from Paris or he'd rule from New York or, or some important city. Jerusalem? I mean, you go through Jerusalem and you cross the street, sometimes you have to wait for a donkey cart to go by. I mean, certainly he would rule from the center of, of computer power. God's going to amaze us. I think God's going to do some wondrous things. And I, I think uh, quite a few theologians are going to have egg on their face, too. <laughs> My personal opinion. Some of them already have. They've kind of junked post-millennialism, for one thing, because it doesn't look like the earth church is ever going to make the earth, worth, earth worthy of the king. And so most of the post-millennials have jumped, jumped into the all-millennial camp. You know, millenniums have been going on ever since, uh, you know, Christ went back up to heaven and it's just a spiritual thing. 
and there isn't going to be any literal physical lion laying down with a lamb. Well, I, I'm of the opinion that there will be. And I think it's going to be a wondrous time. Think of a lion eating grass. <laughs> but you know what that does? That it gives us a portrait of Eden. What was Eden like? A lot of people say it couldn't have been a Garden of Eden because in the Garden of Eden, everything, every, uh, all the creatures ate vegetables. What are you going to do with lions and leopards and all these kinds of things? Well, you know, if they can eat grass in the millennium, they could have eaten grass in the uh, time of, the, of Eden, too. What did mosquitoes do? <laughs> Were there mosquitoes? Or did uh, they just kind of, you know, uh, not evolve, but kind of migrate out of something else, you know? Well, there probably were some mosquitoes. We, some people ask why God ever created mosquitoes. Well, I don't think there were any problem in Eden. Eden, of course, you wouldn't have had any protection, would you? <laughs> but I don't think there were, uh, that, that the mosquitoes in Eden ate people. <laughs> well, the word could also uh-oh, be translated, he from who, to whom it belongs. And that's the way it is. If you have the NIV here, that's the way it's translated there in uh, that 10th verse, Shiloh, he to whom it belongs. And uh, let me just close out here with the, the verse in Ezekiel 21, verse 37, where that phrase is used. Ruin, a ruin, a ruin, I shall make it. This also shall be no more until he comes whose right it is, and I shall give it to him. This, of course, is spoken within the context of the destruction of Jerusalem during the days of Babylon. God will one day vindicate his name and redeem his people, and Shiloh will come and rule and reign, I believe, on earth and then forever and ever. He's King of kings and Lord of lords on the throne of David. Well, we'll finish Judah next week and move on to the next son.